Hi everyone, my name is Rigby Wallace. I'm married to Sue, and together we give leadership with Ryan and Kate Turmesazen to Common Ground Church across this great city of Cape Town. Massive thanks to all our uh, volunteers and ministry leaders and the comms team who have served so diligently in this tough, tough season as we've done church online. Uh, I want to pause a moment to say thank you to Ryan for leading the charge on the Citizen Series, reminding us that uh, there is a kingdom, an eternal everlasting kingdom, and there is a king who has a will. And uh, wow, Ryan, you framed that so well. And thanks also to Paul for reminding us that uh, we're not writing a new chapter for our own story, but essentially there's the story of God that is broken into time out of eternity. And that story is where we find our meaning and our true purpose. Uh, that's what he did when he called Abraham to uh, pioneer this adventure of, uh, of being pilgrims on a journey that culminates ultimately in that great uh, city in heaven called the New Jerusalem. Uh, my privilege this morning is to speak to you on the subject of polarization or citizens in a polarized world. Now, polarization in our world is a real hot topic at the moment. Think Brexit, think the politics of blue and red in America. Uh, think here closer to home, the, the issue that... Uh, has uh, heated up the airwaves on social media, uh, kids going to school or not going to school in this, in this time. So what's happening? Uh, we find so many relationships, movements, uh, institutions are being polarized or uh, breaking into camps where the conversations generally generate more heat than light. So let's read a wonderful quote from Dan White where he shows us that polarization is a very powerful reality. He says, polarization often takes people that have something in common, emphasizes their differences, hardens their differences into disgust, and turns their disgust into blatant hatred. Each creates two sharply contrasting groups and puts them against each other shaping us for only two options, our side or their side. It's a suffocating social arrangement. Polarization is a power and a principality. Now, there's a bigger problem for those of us who name the name of Christ and we are Christ followers, we're in his church, in his body, when we start to echo some of uh, this narrative Tim Keller uh, from Redeemer, New York, says that uh, polarization is a major challenge in the church because uh, Christians, all Christians, ought to be sold out to the big four issues. Those issues are we need to be sold out. We should be in favor of racial inclusion because all are created equal in the image of God. We should be radically pro-poor. We should also be pro-life. And for Christians, at least, sex should only be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Now, these four things, they've never been combined in any other institution apart from 
early Catholic social teaching and the church from its inception. The early church was marked, uh, characterized by these four things. And so there's no smorgasbord option around these hot topics. There's no, I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative. If we are Christ followers, Tim Keller uh, frames it so well. He says, you can't get excited about what the Bible says about justice for the poor and not get excited about what the Bible says about sexuality or be strongly anti-abortion, but not strongly anti-racism. At that point, you're really not letting the Bible animate you. Here, you're letting the culture animate you. You've just got to immerse yourself in the timeless truths of Scripture because these four things all go together, by the way. Like in Amos 2 and verse 7 where it says, a father and a son go into the same woman and they sell the poor for a pair of shoes. One verse, you see sexual sin and economic injustice. And the Bible sees it as a whole cloth. They go together. And we live in a culture today that tries to tear, not just those two, but all four of those things apart and put them into silos and camps. And so we've got today conservatives defending a few of those two or two or more of those points, usually only two, and liberals the other two. And it is a recipe for polarization. Now, if you're anything like me, I've spent most of my life fighting an inner inclination to kind of express my inner lawyer. I love to be right. I love to, uh, to engage about around some of these things. And I like to think that it's important that everyone sees things from my infinitely wise perspective. So we've got to answer this question, whose side are we on? We saw it in the video clip intro. Whose side are we on? Well, there's this interesting story in the book of Joshua uh, where uh, he is standing ready to go into battle against his enemies. And the, an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, uh, uh, appears to him in all his glory. And Joshua says, who are you for? Are you for us, the Israelites, or are you for our enemies? And the angel of the Lord says, I'm for neither. As the captain of the Lord's hosts, I have come. It's important to see that God has his own side and that very often our polarization tries to co-opt in God into our side, but God is not easily co-opted. He invites us onto his side. And then Jesus breaks into history 2,000 years ago. And in that fantastic passage of Scripture in Matthew 5, all the way through to 7, Jesus lays out what theologians call the constitution of the kingdom of God. How do we live in God's kingdom? How do we take his side? And Jesus came into this world to bring God's side, God's up close and personal expression of citizenship in the kingdom to put it before us in a life-giving way. And that's what the Citizen Series is all about. We're following the way of Jesus in a polarized world. We're learning to march to a different drumbeat, to come under a different voice, to come under timeless wisdom. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus brings six consecutive, uh, what we call countercultural views on, on how to do life. And he's kind of subverting 
the polarization of the 21st century, way back there in the first century. And so in verse uh, 20 onwards, he has these six antithesis statements that go something like this. You've heard it said, et cetera, et cetera, but I say to you. We're going to look at three of those uh, as we, as we uh, learn to become followers of Christ. Big point number one. In Jesus' kingdom, citizens are being radically transformed from destructive anger in a life-giving way or, or, or toward life-giving gentleness. Let me say that again. They're being transformed. And that transformation is about destructive anger giving way to life-giving gentleness. And so Jesus says these words in verse 20 of Matthew 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Drum roll. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to to judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the, the fire of hell. And so essentially you can see what Jesus is describing, uh, the, the historical uh, way people would live is whatever you do, do a whole lot of other stuff, but the worst thing is don't murder. And Jesus is turning that on its head. He's saying, actually, that even when you start to get too easily angry or you're angry for too long, if your anger fuse is too short, you've got a major problem. And if you look at what's the dominant emotion in our 21st century world at the moment, the dominant emotion is anger and outrage. Listen to Scott Sauls from his book, A Gentle Answer, our secret weapon in an age of us against them. In our current cultural moment, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, more rewarded than rejected. Outrage undergirds every day's breaking news. It's part of the air that we breathe a native language, a sick helping of emotional food and drink to satisfy our hunger for taking offense, shaming, and punishing. Outrage has become something we can't get away from, partly because we don't seem to want to get away from it. Instead of getting rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, as Scripture urges us to do in Ephesians 4.31, we form entire communities around our irritations and our hatreds. Tribes and echo chambers form. Social media feeds grow. Political pontifications multiply. Book deals prosper. Podcasts rant and churches split. On some level, we're all engaged in the seemingly insatiable, ubiquitous theme of us against them. The whole idea of being for something has gone out of style. Instead, we prefer to preach an angry gospel about whatever we, we have decided to stand against. We warm ourselves next to the fire of digital hashtags, 
ideologically slanted news feeds and political slogans and religious doctrines and then ready, aim, fire. For the more popular voices among us, this can also become a great way to build a platform, gain followers and fans and earn some cash. Outrage sells. For our generation, hate has been so commodified, it has been turned into an asset. I wish we had time to actually read that again. It is so, so compelling. And so what Jesus is getting at in, in uh, his, his uh, desire to arrest anger in his citizens. And if you're not a Christ follower, you need to know anger is hurting you, it's hurting the world. And he invites us into his slipstream. He is the first citizen of the kingdom. He is the prototype. He is the one who's mastered anger. And he wants to be that person that coaches our lives. But what is he getting at? He's saying, it's not good enough to not murder someone. He's saying, if you justify anger over and over, the next step is that you'll move from anger into contempt. You'll start to insult people. And if you get into a habit of, of uh, 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 insulting and speaking harshly to others, you very easily move anger to insult, from insult to malice. And malice is what judges accuse people. Malice of forethought. That's what happens when you murder someone. You, you, you went on a mission to take them out. My friends, what Jesus is arresting is if you're too easily angered, then you have a trajectory and I have a trajectory in me that ultimately could make me a murderer. And he's showering mercy and grace on us. He's saying, we've got to get to anger first. And citizens in his kingdom are sitting Jesus's anger management class learning. And here's some really good news again from uh, Scott Paul, as he coaches us on the way forward. Commenting on Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, uh, he says, those of us who identify as Christian have been given a resource that enables us to respond to outrage and wrath in a healing, productive, and life-giving way. Because Jesus has loved us at our worst, we can love others at their worst. Because Jesus Christ has forgiven us for all of our wrongs, we can forgive others who have wronged us. Because Jesus Christ offered a gentle answer instead of pouring out punishment and rejection for our offensive and sinful ways, we can offer gentle answers to those who behave offensively and sinfully toward us. But make no mistake, Jesus' gentle answer was bold and costly. His gentle answer included pouring out his lifeblood and dying on the cross. Our gentle answer will be costly as well. We must die to outrage, to our self-righteousness, to our indignation, and to our outrage. Wow. Wow. Can I ask you a question? Before I invite you to pray a little prayer with me, how's your anger fuse? How much damage has anger done to you, to your family, to those around you, to those on, on your uh, social media feeds? Here's a great verse 
from Psalm 18. It says, you have given me, given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. We need to refuse the lie that says if we, if we follow Jesus into this transforming life of, of a tender, gentle heart, we're going to be losers. No, we're taking the side of the person who governs ultimate reality. That's the future. Gentleness is not anger. And we're bringing that gentleness into our culture. Our capital C citizenship is defined by gentleness. Pray a prayer with me. God, I sense you speaking to me today, putting your finger on that fuse in my life that is hurting me, hurting others, causing damage. And I ask for grace. I ask for mercy. I ask for forgiveness. I ask for a new beginning. Lord, thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. And I say to you, I desperately need your transforming grace today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for praying with me, guys. Big point number two, in Jesus' kingdom, citizens are learning to love and speak only the truth in respectful ways. Let's read what Jesus had to say about this in Matthew 5.33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the, Lord, to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, there's that antithesis. You've heard it said, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, uh, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what, what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one or comes from evil. Folk, we're living in an age of alternative facts and uh, it's so hard to know what's actually true. And what we read uh, as prevalent in the first century, where there was this elaborate way of, uh, of sort of downplaying the most important uh, uh, expressions of honesty in communications. The early rabbis had a way of uh, encouraging vows and uh, oaths that if you made them to God, those were the ones you had to keep. But they had a way of excusing, fudging things a little if we made oaths or promises to others. And Jesus is gatecrashing the dishonesty party. He's saying, let your yes be yes and your no, no. He's saying it's, it's really, really superfluous to add an oath to anything that you say because by inference, you're implying that what you said needed some kind of backup because it might not have been true. And Jesus is saying, citizens in my kingdom are truth tellers. They're characterized by loving the truth. They're characterized by standing for the truth. They're characterized by their worldview being informed by the truth of the gospel. And they don't need to do anything to try and add credibility. And they also live with a sense that every word that they speak, they speak under the all-seeing eye of a sovereign, majestic, and truthful creator. And that he keeps a record of everything 
that we say. So what's the elephant in the room? And I'm jumping straight into it. There's some great commentary on, uh, on, on oaths and all that is associated with that. But I'm going for the elephant in the room and the elephant in the bigger room of our culture. It's the elephant called fake news. And that fake news has a way of spilling over into the church. I've been reading a blog by uh, David French, uh, who is a political commentator, uh, and he's a Christ follower in the United States. And he's written a blog recently on the 19th of July uh, entitled Coronavirus, Conspiracy Theories, and the Ninth Commandment. Uh, he says, ever since the start of the coronavirus, I've had a number of readers request a Sunday newsletter addressing Christians and conspiracy theories. Until now, I've resisted. The honest reason is that I was too optimistic. I hoped and prayed that the conspiracies would fade. They have not, at least not in my world. I still see references to the utterly discredited pandemic video. I still see claims that uh, the coronavirus tolls are being intentionally and artificially inflated. There are rampant rumors of people receiving uh, falsely positive test results when they never took a coronavirus test in the first place. Uh, there have uh, long been claims that the lockdowns weren't designed for public health, but rather to uh, destroy the American economy. And I haven't even touched on the wild claims about masks or alleged microchips in the Gates vaccine, which is also uh, fake news and conspiracy theories that have been totally discredited. So important that we, we face this stuff because I want you to know that I get uh, in my uh, 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 mailbox, uh, in, on social media feeds, on Twitter, I get bombarded with so much stuff that when I put it through uh, my own kind of credibility test, I basically delete probably close to 95% of what comes my way. And here's the danger. The conspiracy theorist doesn't think he's lying. And the person who passes it on doesn't think they're doing anything bad because don't you know there's some validity in every story? And the reason we're so gullible, it's because we're not grounded enough as Christ followers in theological and gospel instruction. It's not good enough to just say to people, don't lie. It's not good enough to say to citizens of the kingdom, we should always be telling the truth. But what happens when we forward the fake news to friends and relatives? And what happens when we're part of a problem that is polarizing the world? Here's a thought. Each time we spread fake news ourselves, we're breaking the ninth commandment. What is the ninth commandment? That we should not be part of making a, a false accusation or a bearing false witness. And folk in our world, and even in, in uh, parts of the body of Christ, we're seeing names and reputations and causes and interests and movements slandered. We've seen Christ's name in the world uh, being, in a sense, blasphemed. And he is our first citizen and his name 
is faithful and true. And here's a wonderful, uh, again, uh, 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 some commentary on the, on, on the ninth commandment our, from the Westminster Larger Catechism. There's a brief one that many people have seen, the catechism, the catechism and how do we live out our faith. This is the larger one that sort of just uh, uh, expands on that. So, so here's an interesting read. The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart, sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities or weaknesses, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers and slanderers, love and care of our own good name and defending it when need requireth, keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely and of good Report. What kind of a world would we be in? And what kind of a church would we be? What kind of light would the church have in the world if this were to be how we handled uh, all the conspiracy theories and all the fake news and all the stuff that is doing the rounds? In Jesus' kingdom, his followers are being empowered by the Holy Spirit and being transformed, not into a position of neutrality, but where we take the side of truth, where we stand for that truth, where we speak that truth, where we love the truth, where our yes is yes and our no is no. And we'll be seeing how to stand on the truth in the coming weeks. There's uh, some amazing talks coming up which are going to further uh, uh, feed our journey as citizens into transformation. I want to invite you right now to pray another prayer with me. Let's be before the Lord. Let's reflect on what we have both read and forwarded. Let's reflect on our track record in terms of truth-telling. And let's look to our first citizen, Christ himself, to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to recalibrate us to be an army of truth-tellers. Let's pray. God, as I listen to this message, I'm aware of moments and times where I've not lived out of this mandate to be a truth-teller. I want to acknowledge, Lord, that I have probably damaged and hurt and harmed reputations with my words. And today I'm asking you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of the kingdom, to extend your scepter of mercy and grace 
over my life, over our lives. We say yes to being transformed by grace, by your goodness. We ask you to, to sanctify our lips and heal those whom we might have damaged or harmed in any way. In Christ's name, for his glory. Amen. So our last and big point, number three, in Jesus' kingdom, citizens are learning to love their neighbors and their enemies. From verse 43 in uh, Matthew 5, we read these words. You have heard that it was said. There's the, uh, uh, the opposite. Uh, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Wow. Jesus is really uh, speaking to us so powerfully through this passage. You've heard it said, but I say to you. In our culture, uh, we very often too quick to make enemies, to feed enmity, particularly with those who are different to us, who have a different perspective. And uh, sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, there's more heat that's generated than light. I'm sometimes embarrassed about this inner lawyer uh, root in me. When I was uh, about 11 or 12, my late mother said to me, what do you want to do when you leave school? And I said, I want to be a lawyer. And she looked at me, she said, and I come from an unchurched family. She said, that's right, Rig, either a lawyer or a minister. I didn't understand that at all until way later. And uh, I realized back then I had this, this desperate need to have to be right. And, uh, and very often, a lot of uh, uh, enemies are born out of that perspective. I'm so grateful that much of that has been, has been arrested. But why do we get so angry with each other when they're different perspectives? Why are we so, so hard-nosed about what we believe? What is it about us when faced with foreign facts, our brains naturally defend or, uh, or deflect other views? What is it about us when we hear a different view, we feel like it's a personal assault on us? Some neurologists refer to this as the, the backfiring effect. And uh, what Jesus is getting at is he's, he's arresting this tendency to categorize people as neighbors and enemies. And uh, he's basically addressing the fact that God is equally kind to good and evil, that he pours rain on the just and the unjust, that God has a way of bringing grace and kindness to everyone, irrespective of where they stand, even in relation to himself. My friends, only affection and kindness and empathy can open up perceived enemies to something new. 
Only will those who differ very, very strongly with us in terms of what they believe or the positions they've taken, they'll only hear us when they're convinced that we really, really do care about them personally. It seems to me that Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, capital C citizens, it's not about having all the right content for our, for our arguments and positions. It's as important to have the right behaviors. We're learning to become a certain kind of person and we're being transformed by his perspective. And uh, people are important, not just what they stand for. And so the way of Jesus is the way that ends up with you and I, so that we may be sons of your Father in heaven. What's that all about? Sons of your Father in heaven. It's we love our enemies. And when we do that, we're evidencing the way God moves toward his enemies. We're not picking a side on the left or the right. We're taking God's side for everyone. I just love that. The fact that God's common grace is poured on the world and I need to bring some of that common grace toward the various poles that we encounter in so many of the conversations we have. And here's the deal, friends, as we come into land. Because Jesus has covered all of our offenses, we can be among the least offensive and least offended people in the world. What a prayer to pray, to ask God to use us to be a means of his common grace to the world on the just and the unjust, to bring his mercy, to bring his affection, to bring his love. That's not saying we don't have strong convictions. That's not saying we don't have a position, but it's not defending my personal position. It's really about taking God's side on every issue and finding compelling ways and winsome ways to share these both within the church and in the marketplace of ideas and many, many conversations. Let's be before the Lord and ask uh, for this work of grace in our hearts. God, please have mercy on me, on us, on our church, on all the networks of relationship we have where we have categorized people into so easily into those who for us and our enemies. And you come with that spirit and that work of gentleness, even in this area. Give us a, 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 a merciful perspective when we look at people who are other, but that we don't silo them in the other. Forgive us for our othering and putting labels on people. God, we ask you to forgive us for that sinful uh, behavior. And we ask for that work of the Spirit, make us brand new, pour grace on us. We want to be uh, followers of the way of Jesus in this harsh and judgmental world for the glory of God. Amen. So, the most wonderful thing I want to leave you with today is that uh, there's, there's, there's something flowing through all of these six antithetical statements. You've heard it said, but I say. 
And it's this theme, not just on behaviors, but it's the theme of identity. That you may be sons of you. God's looking for citizens. That's a conferred identity. You can't earn it. You're born into the kingdom of God and it's given to you as a gift. And citizens who are following the, 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 the first citizen, Jesus Christ, are learning how to live like he is, a son of his Father in heaven. And we are learning not to earn our sonship. We're learning to evidence it in this world. And we're never more like Christ when we're living in what he says and we're following him and we're being transformed by his truths. And the beauty is that when we were God's enemies, he makes us friends through the cross. He makes us citizens in his kingdoms by grace. And, but all along, he looks over us as a fond father, as sons and daughters of the kingdom. Friends, 2,000 years ago, Jesus started a revolution of love. How? By turning enemies into these friends, these citizens, these sons, and inviting them into the slipstream of his love and his wisdom and his power. Folk, this is impossible without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. That's why each point I've stopped to pray, to cry out to God, to say, Lord, we can't do this without you, but with you, we can do all things through Christ who is strengthening us. Folk, 2,000 years ago, he started with just a little group of 12, which I call a compelling minority. And in that group of 12, there's lots of room for every one of us, even over 2,000 years Later, in that prototype group of 12 and a few others, there's Simon the Zealot, who is a radical revolutionary socialist kind, uh, or even a nationalist. And then there's also Matthew the tax collector, who's on another pole. But in the kingdom, these two enemies of each other and enemies of God became friends of Christ and of each other and became part of that revolution of love to the world. And so friends, we're gonna land our time together uh, by going to communion uh, in the context of our homes, our families. If you're alone, you're not alone, you're joined to the body of Christ. And we do this uh, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What a joy it is to realize that I don't have to bring my inner lawyer to this moment. In fact, I can trade that inner lawyer part of my life for Jesus Christ as my perfect, generous advocate. The one who makes me right with God. I don't have to spend my life trying to make myself right. I love how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3. He says, Jesus died, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And for communion is about Christ having made a way for us to come to God. And every time we break this bread and drink from this cup, we're being reminded that he has made a way for us to keep coming to God. He's opened up, as it were, heaven to the citizens of the kingdom to celebrate, to affirm the rich salvation we're enjoying today.
So won't you, in the context of your home, just take your, your bread and your cup and let's eat together as this uh, lovely music plays in the background. And you may want to uh, join in with the singing uh, once you've finished uh, eating and drinking and pray for each other in these challenging and trying times.